This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. Thank you again for being here. And those of you joining us online, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, the New Testament letter to the Romans. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, this inerrant word given to Paul as he, as he wrote these words, as we begin and continue in this series on a healthy church. I so, uh, I'm so thankful for our staff and our leadership team, thankful for Dre Lavanderos being able to preach for me last Sunday. Uh, as, as I said at 8 o'clock, I can't let Drace preach more than one Sunday every six months. Because people really like Drace, and they get disappointed when they see me come back in here. So, uh, but Drace, I uh, appreciate him and bringing a word, one of the greatest, uh, really a great preacher, and I love hearing him preach. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, it says this, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I'm going to take you through a little bit of uh, evangelical church history, which is not necessarily that exciting, so just hang with me for a little bit before we get to some more meat here. But uh, I'm about done with using the word evangelical. I'm, I need a new word. I think I'm just going to say Baptist for us from here on out because the word evangelical has been hijacked and it's now considered to be a political lobby group, and I'd rather not have that when it's supposed to mean something much different than that. But uh, in, in evangelicalism, which incorporates or constitutes all of those who believe in the Word of God in the New Testament, over the last few decades, some, some things began to happen, some things began to change in American churches. And uh, I, I'm not going to get into all the details and the nuts and bolts of that, but it has been by those who know much more than I do who have studied this trend, something took place between 1995 and 98 that really kind of turned and and redefined American evangelical church life. Now, I was serving here at this church in ministry as a student pastor during those days. Many of you were here at the church or in another church of like belief and like doctrine, and so perhaps you can go back in your mind to think about those days. But but what has happened, what took place in, in, in Christian culture, there was a collision that really took place. It was a collision that that for decades had been building up and building up and building up here in America, and it was the, the, the collision of the church growth movement, and the church growth movement really began decades prior, and, and the church growth movement was built on this concept that is, if you get more people in the room, then you're a successful church. It's really just a business uh, mindset. It's not necessarily wrong, but taken to the nth degree it would be, because Americans, we just like, we like big right? We want the, the, the biggest buildings in the world if we can get them. We want the, the, the biggest uh, airplanes and the biggest cars and, and, and the biggest stores. I mean, you may not like the concept of what's happened to the mom and pop stores due to the growth of uh, Walmart and Target and Amazon, but apparently we like it enough to keep shopping there. So we like big, 
And in church life, the same thing began to happen. So there was a movement, a church growth movement, which was intended to be healthy and right, but in many cases left behind the church health movement. And so growth was considered to be good as long as there are more in the room. You know, and then it makes sense. You know, there's more in the room. There's more people to hear the gospel. But if only getting people in the room was the goal, then we have forsaken what the scripture has called us to be and to do. And so what was happening, the church growth movement was growing and growing and growing, and the megachurch movement was growing. That really had never existed prior to to you know the 90s and the 80s you started seeing the growth of the mega church which is the attendance of about 2,000 or more on a regular basis and those numbers have fluctuated depending on who's writing the book and who determines that somewhere along the line in the late 1990s that kind of blew up came together and for many of us since it's now 2021 we look back and, and it's hard to remember things much further back for some of you you weren't even alive further back and so that's all you've ever known and you think, well, that's how it's supposed to be. And, and yet it's not necessarily what, what, is, uh, what was supposed to be or what is healthy in the church life. So what happened in the late 90s, churches in the megachurch and the church growth and those that were emulating that began to ask questions about their denominational connectivity. Questions like, why are we in a denomination? What do we get out of this? And that's kind of a natural question people tend to ask, you know, why would I give money to a church? What do I get out of it? Why, would, why be it in a denomination? What do I get out of that denominational entity? Or a seminary or, or some publishing house? Why buy stuff from that publishing house? What, what's in it for us? And there were a lot of questions that were put on the table during that era. And what happened is at the apex of the, the church growth and the, um, the megachurch movement, you also had the result of an incredible number of non-denominational churches coming out of that. Now, that's nothing wrong with non-denominational churches. Some are very healthy. Some aren't quite so healthy. But non-denominationalism became the trendy norm. And in some cases, churches were abandoning their denominational structures because they needed to. In mainline denominationalism in America, for the most part, the mainline denominations, by the way, the Southern Baptist Convention isn't even, isn't even really a denomination by definition of the term, actually, but nevertheless, the autonomous Baptist churches in the world, we have our own issues, but mainline Protestantism was having major issues. In every mainline Protestant denomination, by and large, there was a heavy lean toward liberalism. Now, when I say liberalism, some of you are automatically going Democrat, Republican, and I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about theological liberalism. Take the politics, leave it outside the building. Let's talk about theological liberalism, biblical liberalism. What was happening in mainline denominational structures was an abandonment of scripture, an abandonment of the inerrancy of the word. The Bible might be true or it might not be true. It was just written by a bunch of men who compiled it together. How are we to trust that? And when those questions started infiltrating, the denominations held on to that. And what was happening is some of the churches who would be considered conservative theologically were looking at their denominations and going, we can't be a part of this. It happened here in our own culture, in our own community, in our own city. I mean, there's a reason that there's Grace Episcopal Church and there's New Grace Anglican Church. I know we're online and some are going to watch this and be offended, but let me just say there was a schism in the, in the Episcopal Church a number of years ago. 
Uh, and, you know, it's not a <laughs> declaration about either of those churches. I'm not in either denomination. But, uh, but the Anglicans and the Episcopals are supposed to be one, and yet there was something happening in the American Episcopal Church that angered and frustrated a number of what we would consider more conservative Episcopalians who said, we can't stay in this denomination. Problem was, they didn't own their own buildings, so they had to leave, and then they got, went under an African bishop to go back under the Archbishop of Canterbury. I know you're Baptist. You have no idea about this. Me neither. But nevertheless... That's why we have Grace Anglican and Grace Episcopal. It all was one church when I moved here. But due to the ordination of a bishop in the Episcopal church who had left his spouse to, to marry another individual of the same gender, that caused the great divide. And that's not just in the Episcopal church. The Methodist church right now is having major issues. And, and you need to pray for our Methodist brothers and sisters. I mean, it's huge. If not for the African Methodists who had, not the African Methodist Episcopalian, not the AME, but the African and South American Methodists who were pulled into the United Methodist Church, it would have divided two years ago. And they still may. And it's still on the same issues. Presbyterians have already had that issue. But what about Baptists? Well, Baptists are autonomous, and we have more conservative Baptists, and we have more liberal Baptists, and we have some who claim to be Southern Baptists, and some who are independent Baptists, and they're all over the place, too. But this is what was happening, and this is what is still happening. And so you have this that took place in American Christianity back in the late 90s, and we're still, I don't want to say reaping the benefits because there's, there's more challenges than benefits in this. But something else began to take place at that time. There was a side effect of the propagation of what we see as non-denominationalism and the disconnected of church, disconnection of churches and networks. You had the growth or at least the, the stronger emphasis on prosperity gospel hucksters. That would be anybody, I don't know, from a Kenneth Copeland to a Joel Osteen to anybody within that mix who is growing immensely and gathering a lot of money and preaching a false gospel. And prosperity gospels, you know it's out there. We had a whole session on that about a year and a half ago. Then you had at the same time the growth of what we now call celebrity preachers. And some of the celebrity preachers are godly men who preach in gospel-saturated churches and they didn't intend to be celebrity preachers, but they have nonetheless due to the growth of what? Church growth movement and megachurches. What a great influence they have. But some of them are struggling even with that. But in addition to that, here's something else that began to happen. Now, this is just my observation. There was an era that I grew up in where music in the church was all sung out of a hymn book. And the hymn books were published by our publishing house. And the hymn books were songs that we knew and songs that were supposed to declare some of the doctrine, or at least not most of the doctrine that we hold to. And then something began to take place, we say in the 80s, but it really started with Larry Norman and another group out of the Jesus movement in the late 60s. And it would what, what you would call the, the growth or the birth of what was known as contemporary Christian music, CCM. So CCM, contemporary Christian music, grew, and it created a little bit of a divide within the church as generations didn't necessarily like the same music. Because contemporary Christian music was, was a little more pop and rock-oriented music with Christian themes, and some generations, maybe the parents of the kids that liked that, said, I don't see how that can be done in the church. Well, that happened, that came and went. And at the same time, the Gaithers are still gathering on everybody's stage, singing with 100 people. I mean, so it's the same thing. It's just different styles, okay? So you either have the bus pulling up with the quartet coming in or the Gaithers on the recliners on the stage or you got a uh, new song or uh, 
Michael W. Smith or whomever was big at the time. So CCM became a thing, became a subgroup, a subgenre of pop music. That's really what it was, a subgenre of pop music with enough Christianity to call it Christian. Out of the CCM subgenre came another one about 15 years ago called praise and worship. Praise and worship music, because we said we're, we're deeper than just CCM, we need P and W, so praise and worship. And praise and worship music, you know, for 15 years or so, became every youth group's Wednesday night thing. And sometimes it made it into big church. Praise and worship music. And here's where something really took place that was really kind of odd and really kind of weird and had never historically taken place in church before. But all of a sudden, churches became known for their bands and their worship leaders and the logo for their worship team. As their worship leaders in the local body would load up on the airplanes or the buses and then go on tour doing worship concerts, which seems like an oxymoron. But anyway, that's what happened. So you have the growth of the passion band and the concerts out of that. You've got Hillsong. You've got some others that had kind of came along and, and did this. And all of a sudden, churches were known more for their style of music and their rock concert production presentations and their concert-like gatherings than for the declared and preached word of God. It just happened. It happened. And Christians of various denominations would buy tickets to go see some other church's worship leaders in concert. It's kind of weird when you think about it. But it, yet it seems normal because it's been around for over 15 years now. But historically, this was not the way. It may seem to be connected. I think it's actually a, a, an outgrowth of, I honestly think it's an outgrowth of the Southern Gospel group and the bus going church to church to the Gaithers doing their thing, to the Crusades and, and, and George Beverly Shea and all of that. And now it's the local rock worship team. In the old days, in the old days, we had hymn boards. Do you remember hymn boards, those little chunks of wood that, that were ta taped or tacked on the wall behind the stage? On this side, you had a board that told how many people, it, it was a really, it was the most depressing thing in every church I've ever been in. I grew up in these. Every church. It was a list of how many people, how many more people came to church last year than today. That's what it was, right? Last year, more people came to church, and last year, more people gave money. Woe is us, give more money. That's what's on this board. And on this one are the, the hymn numbers, so you'll know what, what page to turn in the book when it's time to sing. You know what happened to those hymn boards? They, they were sold at auction. We know, I don't know where ours are. They, they disappeared before I got here. I did see somebody, some, some doctor down the street has them in his office because I was there for an appointment. And I looked up and I thought, that's a hymn board, but it says next appointment, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. I said, wow. So they repurposed it. And it's like uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines making use of hymn boards. Um, so, so we don't have hymn boards anymore, but now we have social media set lists. Come to church on Sunday, here's the Spotify link so you can listen to the song so you can be prepared to sing a song you really don't know that well when you show up to church on Sunday. That, that's kind of the new hymn board. What's old is new again. It's just on social media. Now here's something in case you think I'm just ranting. I don't really think the worship concerts and all that others, I don't think it's a sin. I really think it's neutral because I really don't think much of it at all. I don't think it's life-changing for the most part unless there is the gospel incorporated into it, not as a brand, not as a tagline, not as a verse on a t-shirt to purchase for $30. I'm talking about the real gospel presentation. 
But I really don't think that what's happened is sinful. I just think it's a thing. It's just the next thing that has become that which everybody talks about in Christian subculture circles. But what it does do, it does reveal this, a major shift in church members' mindsets and a major shift in the desires from what people are wanting from their church. And it leads pastors and church leaders asking very strange questions when analyzing why there are more former members of their church in their community than current ones, which is a reality for us. In the midst of marketing shifts and promotional pushes and everything you could buy in a box at Lifeway or any other Christian store to help you be the greatest church in the history of churches, the truth is you can do everything that you're being told to do by everybody else and still be an unhealthy church. You have conversations, and we see these, we hear these. People say, hey, uh, and every now and then you'll see it on one of those community pages on Facebook. Let me warn you not to go there because it, it, it's, it, it's like a black hole. But every now and then I look, and someone will say, hey, I'm looking for a new church. And I think, that's not true. Somebody's lying on Facebook. It's a setup. Somebody that's already in a church is asking the fake question so someone else can answer the question. And then I watch 600 answers of everybody marketing their brand of church. That's all it is. We have a great kids program. We have a great concert-like setting. It's very informal. It's very formal. We are high church. We are low church. We have big band. We have orchestra. We have casual preacher. We have dressed up preacher. We have whatever. And that's kind of where we end up. That's what's happened in, I don't know what you call it, the Walmartization of evangelicalism. One-stop shop. How's your church? Well, I really love the youth program. The kids' program's really good. We have incredible music. I don't like this. I do like that. It's a nice building. We're friendly people. But what you often do not hear, the gospel is preached boldly and clearly and unapologetically and not rudely, but just clearly. See, a church can have all the trappings that have been sold to us as pastors and leaders for the last three decades and still be unhealthy. In addition to being a church, as Brian mentioned earlier, that prays expectantly. And being a church that as best we can will gather intentionally. The healthy church must be one that preaches boldly. And when I say preaches boldly, I don't mean preaches loudly. I don't mean preaches rudely. I don't mean preaches politics. I don't mean preaches legalism, and I don't mean preaches anything else that the world or even churchy people might define as boldly. All that type of preaching can be done and has been done and is being doing, being done, is being doing, and it's not real healthy preaching. I remember years ago, I was on staff here. Dr. Alan Herod was our senior pastor, and, and uh, it was the second time this individual came to preach at our church, and I was really excited about it. I was a youth pastor. I had a number of students in our ministry. Many of you, or uh, a few of you at least, were in the youth ministry at that time, and uh, this guy was coming up. He lived in Central Florida. I won't give his name, but, but he was an evangelist, a pastor, and he was, I don't know uh, what you would consider him, the latest, the latest rock star preacher in the state of Florida, and he was preaching in a lot of churches, and he was really, I was really encouraged to hear him. First time I heard him, I thought, man, he's really good. So he was coming again, and I was just really excited to hear this brother preach, and he, he, um, he, he was one that you knew was just going to have a lot of energy, and was going to be engaging, so I'm telling the students, guys, don't miss church today. You need to be sure you be here. Get, get your notes out. I want you to take notes, because if you write something down, you're going to remember it better than if you just kind of sit and listen to a, to a dialogue or to a monologue. So 
So uh, I'm sitting there, I, th- I think I'm sitting there on the second or third row with my wife and my family, and he comes up to preach, and, and I remember uh, he, he got started, and let me just say, it was, it, it was an exciting, fun service. Man, it was fun. I got my notepad out, I wrote down his name, I wrote down the date, and I'm just ready to go into this. And he preached, it was fun, it was, he was loud, and, and he, he, was, he was interactive. He interacted with the congregation. Let me just go ahead and declare this, that the, you know, the, the silent First Baptist Church of Orange Park was actually saying amen back to this guy. That was, that was unheard of. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we're just not a talkative church. And so this guy was being fed. You were feeding him. And as we were feeding him, he was preaching louder. And it was just kept going back. It was, it was boom, man, ooh, ah, it was awesome. Amen, hallelujah, and all that. And then the dust settled, and the service was over, and the invitation was about to happen. I looked down at my notes, and I noticed I had written nothing else but his name and the date. You know why? Because he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. I mean, I wrote the scripture reference down, but, but, but that was it. It was a fun time had by all. It was a great pep rally. There's enough phrases being said from the stage that elicited the appropriate amens at the right time because if you say the things that everybody in the room already agrees with, we can feel like we're ready to go, you know, rah, rah, let's go, let's win. But he said nothing, really, of substance. And, and, and I like him. But that day was just a show. And I remember what, what, leaving at that moment. I mean, I, I put my notes back up. I mean, I, could, I actually saved the paper until next week because I hadn't used it. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what? I would rather be boring and say something worth hearing than be the most exciting person on stage and waste a person's hour. So that's why I'm boring. <laughs> that's why I'm boring. And I, you amen me. I don't know what to do with that. So... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not always good to be boring, but boring with substance is better than entertaining with nothing. So let's look again at Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to remember that. You know, that's a Roman road verse. We kind of bounce around in Romans and we throw that one out there. I want you to think of the most, think of the individual that you're, in your mind right now is going, there is no way that person will ever become a Christian. Just think about that. And then think of this verse. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not can be, not maybe, will be. That's a promise. He goes on and says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Listen, without the proclaimed, preached word of God from a pulpit and from you in your daily life, how will they hear? So you don't, don't put this back on, it's just the preacher's job. It is the preacher's job. It is the Christian's role to proclaim the gospel. The call of the lost to be saved requires bold preaching. The call to the saved to continue living righteously and to not give up requires bold preaching. How are they to hear without someone preaching? Some underestimate and underrate the value of the preached word. Some people would say, oh, I love that church. I don't like the preaching. I just like the music. That's not a church. That's a concert. Buy the CD and go find a church. I mean, come on, seriously. Let's quit playing these games where we get what we want, but we, only, we like Christianity buffet style. Music from this church, preaching from that church, friends from that church. If we're going to love who, where we live and love our church, We've got to understand that God is doing something right here. 
The word of God is what he uses to bring us to a place of change, conviction, and hope. You may get that in a song. You may get that conviction and that drawing to the Lord in a praise and worship chorus, in an ancient hymn, in some contemporary Christian music song. I like all of that. In fact, I have a channel on Amazon. I listen to that while I study and even prior to coming in here. So I'm not anti-music, but let me help you understand something. The lyrics to a song are not inerrant. They are not the Word of God, unless that song is actually taking its lyrics from the Word of God. So the word of God or the words of a good Christian song, what will they do? They will point you toward his word, which ultimately points you toward the word, Christ himself. So just so you understand, there are some terribly tragic, theologically empty southern gospel songs. You know that, right? Just because you like the beat and the banjo and a little ding a ding a ding ding doesn't mean it's a good song. And there are some tragically empty Modern worship songs. It is the word of God that is inerrant and holy that we go to. Give it a good beat and I can remember verses a lot better. That's okay. That's what the book of Psalms is. Nevertheless, let's look at why we preach. I want to make sure we... Man, you know, I didn't preach for like three weeks and they were all real short sermons. I'm so sorry about today. preparing you why do we preach why do we preach that's the first question if you are a note taker there's the first one why must we preach have you ever been to a funeral that's why we preach because death is the destiny of every man and the living should take it to heart and I would say and I would declare today that it is better to hear the message of the gospel before your funeral for at that point it's too late See, there is a life that is happening right here and a life that happens beyond right here and what we do with Christ right here determines where we are right there. That's why we preach. Because it is life or death. Well, I don't want to tell my friend about this. It might hurt their feelings. It might hurt their feelings all the way to hell. Because this life, what we do with Christ, determines where we are. We preach because we've been commanded to. Look at... 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's the second passage I'm going to take you to today. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to Timothy, the young pastor, protege, his young son in the faith. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Why must we preach? Because Christ is going to judge between the living and the dead. Preach the word because apart from Christ, we are all dead in our sins. To have the answer of Jesus Christ in our life and to keep it to ourselves is heinous. To know the way to heaven and tell no one is criminal. We have the way. He is the way. People do not need a life coach from their church. They need a pastor and a Christian proclaiming the truth of the gospel from the word of God. Lost people who get their acts together are still lost people with their acts almost together. That's it. You understand this. Lost people who are really good neighbors are still lost people. They need Jesus. Saved people sometimes get forgetful and confused. That's us. Sometimes the saved are saved for so long we forgot what it was like to be lost. And when we forget what it was like to be lost, the urgency to tell our lost family and friends is gone. And then we convince ourselves in our own head that our good 
family members and friends are probably Christians anyway. You ever had that happen? They're, they're probably Christians. They, they probably went to church when they were five. They probably prayed a prayer. There's no evidence, but it's easier for us to believe that those closest to us are really going to heaven because it alleviates any pressure for us to talk to them about what really matters. That's not a guilt trip. That's just the gospel. And that doesn't mean you've got to go beat them over the head with the Bible. It does mean we might want to pray expectantly and preach boldly as we live our lives before our lost family and friends. Sometimes as Christians, we forget what it was like. Sometimes as Christians, Christians get comfortable. They got their heaven ticket punched. They sell out their convictions, convince themselves that God is their buddy. They think that God may be some religious rabbit's foot or he's more of a uh, politicized for their own theology. They, they've traded in their theology for political ideology and they've lost their focus and their power. And so we preach the word to the lost and we preach the word to the saved and sometimes we have to preach the word in the mirror. We preach it in our lives, how we live, how we interact, how we comment online, how we behave, and in what we say, knowing that we cannot be obedient children of God with a gag in our mouth, leaving it up to someone else to talk about Jesus. We preach unapologetically as the redeemed, hoping others will join us. That's why we preach. Secondly, what must we preach? Look at verse 2. Uh, you know, sometimes in Scripture you'll read a verse and you'll go, I need to look at an Old Testament uh, uh, connection here and I need to look how it connects in the New Testament let me get about 18 commentaries and dig into this let me look at original language and that's all good and that's all healthy and that's all needed but then sometimes in the scriptures you don't have to go that deep you can just look right there and the answer to the question what must we preach is right there in verse 2 preach the word the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching it's a pretty simple reality we preach the holy word of god from genesis to revelation every poem every historical account every promise every genealogy every gospel account every letter and every prophecy we preach the word not our word not our interpretation of the word but not even our new creative way of making the word stick by having props and video clips and this that and the other no 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 we preach the word unapologetically that's not up for debate i know in baptist life we like to make motions and vote on things we don't get permission to make a motion should we preach the word i make a motion i second it let's vote it's not up for vote it's a command the word is given we are to preach it now the church that shifts god's word to being optional or considering it a myth or some man-made stories that may be full of error, that church then is no longer most likely a church, but is more like a religious museum of days gone by. I don't know how much you know about what's going on in different denominations and churches around the world, but in, in the Anglican church in England, the Anglican church, you have the archbishop, but you have different leaders over different cities. And in the city of London, in that region, that borough, there is a document that has come forth from its... Uh, uh, the, the, I don't know if it's bishops or whatever their leadership group is, but, but this document has come forward. It's like 400 pages. And it is a document that declares certain things that they're wanting to teach within their churches. And in one section, it says something to the effect of, and our church officially, officially believes that, that sexual relations are reserved within the marriage union only, and that is between a man born a man and a woman born a woman by God's design as according to Scripture, official teaching. Same, same document, 
But some don't believe, some in our churches do not necessarily hold to the fact that marriage is required. And so you can kind of, I don't know what you, spiritually shack up, I guess. I don't know. That's what they're calling. That's what I called it. They don't call it that. I call it sin, but nevertheless. Then there's another section of the book that says, and some not only don't believe that marriage is required, but believe that if we do require marriage, that marriage ought to be open for all people, all genders, and all times, same-sex marriage, this, that, and the other. And, so the, and it has another section. The document contradicts itself, but that's what you're seeing when you start abandoning the truth of the Word of God. Here's what the Bible says, but here's what I don't like about it, so I'm going to say this. And I've got a friend that doesn't like that, so they're going to say that. And I've got a family member that's like this, so I want to, I want to say that too because I don't want to offend them. I want them to have a place at the table. So what you have, as far as we know, there's one major Anglican church in that borough that would be considered a conservative theological church. So what are they doing? Asking the same questions that were asked in the late 90s in the States by many churches. How can we stay in this denomination and hold to biblical truth when by staying in it, it appears we're declaring everything but biblical truth? You see what's happening here. What do you preach? Not a 21st century update to the gospel. Not a culturally pleasing version of the Bible. It takes boldness to preach the word of God unapologetically. It takes boldness to talk about passages of scripture that we often don't want to address. I know pastors who like an expo, uh, ex, expository preaching going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's what we've done. We've taken a little bit of a break right now in this series, but we've been in the book of Acts. We're hitting every verse. I know some pastors that say that's a cop-out. That's the easy way out because you don't even have to plan. You can just open your book to the next chapter and preach it. I kind of like that. Then there's the other type of preaching. That is, there's a lot of types, but then there's the other which is more topical and it's like, okay, we're going to do a series on marriage, going to do a series on dating, going to do a series on gluttony, going to, I don't know, pick something. So we have a series, a series, a series. I've done all of this. This is a series on the healthy church, so it's a little bit more topical. We're going to go right back to the book of Acts in March, but nevertheless, I have pastor friends that's on both sides that say, oh, that's the easy way out, that's a cop-out, that's the easy way out, that's a cop-out. Here, here's something I love about preaching verse by verse. If we're going to go verse by verse throughout the Scripture then you're going to hit verses that are going to offend a lot of you in the room today at some point. We're going to talk about things that I don't really want to talk about. You're going to, it would be much easier to just do another series on everybody else's sin than to hit the verse that's coming up. But if we're called to preach the word, then we must preach the word. Now, you can throw a verse at somebody in judgment, but what about throwing a verse at somebody in love? <clears throat> See, the Bible speaks, and the Bible speaks truth. When you start preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the entirety of the word of God, and now you're preaching to the serial divorcee about what God thinks about divorce, you can't sugarcoat it. You start talking to the person who's sharing a bed with someone, not his spouse or her spouse, then you can't sugarcoat or ignore the, the reality of adultery and what God thinks about that in relations outside of biblical marriage. What about marriage? When you start talking about how God defines the marriage and defines it between one man and one woman, you have to speak on what the scripture says. God's word speaks on his plans for us and how to honor him. And often, our plans don't line up with his plans. The culture's plans don't line up with his plans. And so we will be preaching 
offensive language at times, but in love. And that's, that's, that's key. Remember what I said? Just being loud and angry does not a healthy preacher make. Preach the word in love. To the parents who would rather have their kids be their buddies than grow up to be disciples of Christ, we preach about that. There's nowhere in Scripture that it says it's the youth pastor's fault. There are no youth pastors in Scripture, except probably Jesus, only because the disciples were all likely teenagers. But nonetheless, think about that. It's all there. And we can pick the big things. Those are easy. But then what about those other areas that maybe we don't want to deal with? Like, as I said, gluttony or selfishness or jealousy or worry or anxiety and all those things that all of us at some point likely face at some level. It's in there. And so we preach boldly the word of God, trusting God to give us what we need there. Because every other message that's offered outside of God's word is going to be incomplete. All right, wrapping it up. Why do we preach? And what do we preach? Here's the third one. When do we preach? Look at verse 2 again. Preach the word. When? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So when is preaching season? I know when baseball season is. I understand football season. I even get summer, winter, fall, and spring. We have three of those in Florida. But when is preaching season? Is there a preaching season? Is that what he means? Paul does not mean it in such a way that there is a season for preaching that you need to preach and be ready, and then there's a season you don't have to do anything. What he's saying is this. There is no season. Your life is a gospel presentation, meaning you must be ready to preach the word at all times. That means when it's scheduled on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, I need to be prepared at 8 o'clock and 1045. But it also means that when it's not scheduled, like any other time on the calendar that I don't have it marked off, be ready to preach the word. When it's convenient, preach the word. When it's not convenient, preach the word. When it's daytime, preach the word. When it's nighttime, preach the word. When it's in public, preach it. When it's privately, preach it. When the people want to hear you, preach it. Preach it. When the people really don't want to hear you, preach it. Preach it. You don't get a past, and I don't get a pass. The word is to be proclaimed in our life continually. In what we say, and, and definitely what we say. This is not a call for silent witnesses but in also how we live. We are in this together, healthy church, preaching the word boldly because so many of our loved ones and friends are lost and hopeless without Christ. So let me wrap this up. In conclusion, actually means in conclusion because I typed it right there on my notes. These are trying days for the church. They're trying days for everybody, but we're in church. We are the church. Let's talk about church. In an era where churches like ours are wondering what to do next, here's what we know. We know we cannot go back to what we used to do because too much has already changed. Now listen, as pastors and leaders in churches, I meet in a lot of meetings with other guys and in our staff around the table and, and other pastors of other churches. Listen, we're always looking at this. And we have been tracking the state of evangelical life and Baptist life in our nation uh, for years. And here's what we, what we know. We know that our baptisms overall as Southern Baptists have been dramatically going down year after year after year. One of the reasons is we're not as evangelistic as we used to be. Another major reason is we don't have as many kids as we used to. And the primary numbers for all our baptisms were, historically, is because Baptists had like five kids. 
That's a reality. So when Baptists start having 2.5 kids, your numbers are definitely going to go down. But that doesn't, that's not the only answer. We're just not as evangelistic as we used to be. And, uh, and I think we're maybe thinking more in depth, in depth about what uh, evangelism really is as an outgrowth of discipleship. But we've been watching that. We've seen churches in our own city who, have, who are struggling to even stay open, and, and the pandemic has really pretty much shut them down. We, we have seen this trend. We have been watching it, monitoring it, trying new things, church planting, this, that, and the other. But here's what happens. Crises, crises always expedite challenges. The, the change that takes place is going faster because of a crisis. That means this. That what we thought we had four or five years to deal with as church leaders, thinking that 2025, 26, we're going to have to make some major adjustments, that's all out the window. Because of the pandemic, it didn't take five years to get to that point, the point. It took five months. What happened last year is by August, we were already where we thought as a denomination in churches where likely we would end up in 2025. Crises always expedite change. When 9-11 took place and the planes went into the buildings there in D.C. And in, and in New York and the one that went down in Pennsylvania, some of you were alive at the time and you remember that. Do you remember how quickly every plane on the, uh, in, in U.S. airspace went down and was, and was landed wherever it was? They all go down. Amazing. Do you remember how quickly change took place when, in regard to how you travel. See, the new normal became normal in about five minutes once the rules changed. You don't get to go back there at the airport anymore. You got to go up here. Everything changed. Crises expedite change. And in the church, it's happened. 2021, what we're facing now is what we thought we would face in 2025. But here we are. Now more than ever, we're finding ourselves not looking to churches down the street for ideas. Let me just go ahead and declare or confess something to you. Staff meetings, sometimes we would sit in the room around the table and a problem or an issue or an opportunity, opportunities are what you call problems when you don't want to sound negative, would arise and we'd say, well, let's find a church, somebody around the table would inevitably say, let's find a church about our size that maybe we can learn from them. That's gone. There's nobody out there doing anything to, to model anymore. We're learning from each other. I'm on a... I'm on a text message, uh, uh, I don't even know what you call it, with about 20 different pastors, you know, and here's an idea, here's something we're doing. They're asking. We're all asking each other, what are we doing? How are we doing? No one's done this before. We cannot even look at our compiled history of the decades of our pastoral staff. Let me just say this. I said at 8 o'clock, uh, it, it's hard confession, but, but we have, we've got a bunch of old guys on our staff. When you add up, me, Shelvin and I, Stanley and Dave, we bring in Drace and we bring in Hoffman just to make us feel hip. <clears throat> Stan comes in and you got Kenzie in there and Crystal and John's old too. We can't count John Green, but uh, you start looking at the accumulated decades of ministry experience and that is a great thing. I mean, it really is. We, we got decades and decades and decades of, of ministry experience. But hardly any of that's helping us right now. Because as old as we may be, there is nobody on our staff that was on a church staff during the last pandemic. I mean, what was that, 1918? I mean, we're old. We ain't that old. So <laughs> how'd you guys do it in 1918? Well, let me tell you what we did. You know, we, we wrote a, yeah. 
So we're learning what's next. We've already made changes. We, we, how quickly did we go online? We were there a little bit ahead, still trying to figure it out, and boom, I'm, I'm, here we are streaming online and have been every week since uh, last year and, and especially since March when this took place, when we had to shut down. Sunday school classes online. Summer meeting in big rooms around tables, trying not to touch each other. It's a totally different experience than we had a year ago this time. We had to shift on a dime. And it could cause some churches to, fa to fall and to fail, and some will. It could be, you know, maybe to quote Apollo 13, this could be our greatest day. And I think it really could be. Because here's what I'm looking at. We have a solid word of God that's been gifted to us. And in that word of God, we have truth. And in that, we have eternal hope. And even if the millions out there don't want to hear it, to be God's healthy church in Orange Park, we must continue to preach it and proclaim it unapologetically, even the hard verses. Verse 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, Timothy, the young pastor, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's why 2021 can be one of the greatest years of ministry in our church. If there are just enough Timothys in here to be encouraged to preach the gospel, regardless of the tickling ears that people would rather have, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill the ministry God has called us to. I believe greater days are ahead. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know one thing. It won't look like pre-March 2020. It won't. But I also don't think it's going to look like December 2020 or even January 2021 as we continue to move forward. To God be the glory and to God alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and for all you do and uh, all the changes and challenges that take place in church life, whether it's musically oriented, preaching oriented, meeting times, online, offline, in rooms, socially distanced, sitting outside, whatever it may be. Father, we are so thankful that the word of God never changes and that we can rest in you and we can trust you and we can know you. And Father, your written word points to your living word and the living word is Jesus Christ, the son. We are so thankful for who he is. For those watching online right now and those in the room who may not know Jesus personally, Lord, I pray today that you will break through whatever barrier they have put up to keep you out of their life. And that you will draw them to yourself and you will rescue them and you will save them, you will redeem them, and you will give them a hope beyond anything they can imagine. As they hear the gospel, as they respond to it, Lord, grow them into your family. And for the Christians in the room and those watching online, help us to remember what it was like to not know. And give us a burden for the lost sister around us, I pray in Jesus' name.